Good morning, Grace Community Church. I'm Pastor Tan. I'm the children's pastor here, and uh, it's a privilege for me to be able to teach your kids alongside of our team of teachers every Sunday, but it's also a privilege, uh, excuse me, that I get to be down here with you, and I was really excited when I had the opportunity. And uh, this morning, if you looked at your sermon note page, um, you, you saw the title of the sermon, you probably we're asking yourself some questions. Okay, what is this guy going to be talking about this morning? But the sermon title this morning is Jesus is the Goat. Okay? Jesus is the Goat. Okay? Capital G-O-A-T. All right? Now, that is an acronym. Okay? We're not talking about Jesus as this. Kind of have a visual here. Although this is really cute, we're not going to be talking about this this morning. As a children's pastor, I got to give a lot of visuals, okay? And so bear, bear with me a little bit here, all right? But we're not going to be talking about this in particular. In fact, we're not even going to be talking about this. Um, and that's a really nice looking car. The GTO GOAT, we're not talking about that. And probably the most relevant conversation when it comes to talking about the GOAT, the greatest of all time, would be Who's better, Michael Jordan or LeBron? If you type into Google, greatest of all time, the majority of the news articles that are going to be popping up are about who's better between these guys. Now, I grew up in the 90s, and Jordan won his his sixth title when I was eight years old, and I will never forget the game against the Utah Jazz. Final seconds, he crosses Byron Russell up from the Utah Jazz, hits a free throw jumper to win the game. Michael, in my book, is, is going to be the best of all time. But LeBron, he, uh, <laughs> but, uh, Le- LeBron's pretty good too. But we're not going to be talking about that this morning. The, the thing we're going to be discussing this morning and the, the, thing that, the theme that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks as we are in this series of Do You Believe in Miracles is that Jesus is the greatest of all time. Jesus is the GOAT. And John is arguing that same case. And as we go through the book of John, studying the the eight miracles that show Jesus as the Messiah, as the greatest one ever to live, I hope that we are filled with hope and encouragement as we focus our faith into the one that can answer any prayer that we offer. Jesus is the greatest of all time. And by taking him at his word, breakthrough can happen. And we're going to check that out this morning. If you got your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. If if you don't have a Bible, one of our very kind ushers are coming down the aisles. They would love to pass one off to you um, if you you didn't bring one this morning. That's That's a gift Um, from Grace Community Church. So feel free to raise your hand and take one of those. John chapter 4, and we're going to be studying verse 43 to 54 this morning. John chapter 4, verse 43 through 54. If you're there, how about you stand with me? And I'll go ahead and read our passage this morning. John chapter 4, starting in verse 43, says this, After the two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. 
They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Thank you. You guys can have a seat. So as I was reading this passage and studying this passage the last, uh, this last week, a couple things popped, up at, popped out to me that made me first go back to chapter 4. Last week, we were in chapter 2 of John when Jesus turned the water into wine. And that was the first miracle that John puts in his book. Today, we're on the second miracle that John records. But in between there, Jesus, he went to Jerusalem. And that's where he refers to the Galileans. They saw the miracles and the wonders that Jesus was working in Jerusalem. Matthew records this more in detail But then he also traveled to a place called Samaria. Now, Samaria was full of Samaritans. And if if you're aware, Samaritans and the Jews, they did not get along. Samaritans were, were Gentiles. They were not of the Jewish nation. And the Jews really didn't like the Samaritans very much. And so the disciples were actually very surprised when Jesus wanted to spend a considerable amount of time in Samaria. In chapter 4, that's where Jesus meets the woman at the well. And this woman has lived a a broken life. And Jesus tells her everything about her life. And she is blown away. And she realizes that at the end of their conversation, she, she knows for a fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And she is so excited. Her life is so changed. She goes to everybody that she knows and starts telling them about who this Jesus guy is. Jesus stayed there for quite a while and there were tons of people that believed in him as Lord and Savior. The people loved him in Samaria. Right before our passage, the the Samaritans said that, that they knew that this man Jesus really was the Savior of the world. So that's what Jesus left. And he comes back to Galilee, the very place where he had turned the water into wine. But he says something very interesting in chapter 4. He says, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. But then he goes on to say, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. 
because they had seen all, the, all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they had also been there. It's a curious, uh, it's a curious sequence of events here. And actually, if we turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew records this exact encounter in detail and gives us a better picture of how these Galileans were actually welcoming him. Galilee, the place where Jesus was at, it was his homeland. It was his home country. He was amongst the guys that he grew up with, his friends as he grew up, the shopkeepers, the market keepers that he would run by and play around as a boy. That's who he is amongst right now. And Matthew describes that these Galileans, they look at Jesus as he's sharing with them the good news. And they look at him and they're starting to wonder and they say, wait a second, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't his brothers and aren't his sisters living amongst us? Where did he get all of his power? In a way, they say, who gave him the right to come back here and tell us how to live? Because this, this is the boy that we've, we've seen him since he was a child. Who is he to come back and tell us how to live? And Matthew ends that little section by saying the people took offense at Jesus. He goes on to say that Jesus did not perform many miracles there because the people lacked faith. And so when we read Matthew's account of this exact encounter, we realize that the Galileans, they may have welcomed Jesus, but they didn't really welcome him. They were welcoming his miracles and his wonders and his signs, because they had seen him do those things in Jerusalem. They saw him healing sick people. They saw him interpreting people's dreams and telling people about their lives. They saw him do incredible things. And so when they hear that he's coming back to town, they are pumped, because they're like, man, we want some of that. We want that. We want some of those miracles to be amongst us. But they really didn't welcome Jesus. They were just simply welcoming the miracles. And as I was thinking about this, it really hit home to me how in our lives, it can be easy for us to get trapped just like these Galileans. It can be easy for us to get into this cycle in the season of life where we are just loving all of the, the benefits and the gifts that Jesus has just poured out upon us while completely growing cold and hardened to just him himself and the greatest gift that he's given to us with our salvation. I was thinking about my son, Marcus. He's two and a half years old now, and he was born on Christmas Day. And so my wife, Ariel, and I, we have this, this issue where he's got a birthday and he's got Christmas all on the same day. And so we've tried to figure out how to, how to balance all this. We haven't figured that out. Um, if, you ha- if you have kids born on Christmas Day, I'd love to hear your strategies. Um, but he's only the second grandchild 
And so he is, he's what you would call very spoiled by his grandparents. And so on Christmas, he's got this, he's got this double dooski of presents for Christmas and birthday. And he just loves it. He's at the point this past Christmas, I mean, his eyes, when he, when he walked out and he saw the tree, I mean, his eyes are like half dollars. I mean, he is just like pumped, which is kind of fun for us. But I noticed something about Marcus, that if my wife Arielle and I, if we wouldn't tell him to do this, he would never do it. But he sees those gifts, he sees those boxes, those presents, his eyes get real big, you can see the anticipation just building up inside of him, and we say, Marcus, you can go pick up that first one. I mean, he is just like on it. He's to that point, and he rips open the gift he looks at it, he kind of sees what it is. Sometimes we have to tell him what it is. But if we went tell Marcus, hey bud, how about you go tell grandma or grandpa, thank you for that gift. He would never do it. And I think the, thing, the same thing is often true about our lives where we can get in these cycles where we can welcome, we want to welcome Jesus in. Because Jesus does. He provides so many benefits and so many gifts. But Jesus wants us to first want him. He wants us to first appreciate him as the giver of those gifts. And that's where the the Galileans are going wrong. They want the gifts, but they really don't want the giver. Because Jesus' message to this point has been tough. As he's going out and sharing the good news, I mean, he says, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man will have no place to lay his head. He's saying things like, if you want to follow me, you must first deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And so a lot of people are hearing this message, and they're like... He's doing a lot of cool things, and we'd love to have that a part of our community. But I don't really know if I want him. I don't really know if I really want to trust him. But a man comes into the scene that's not of his homeland. This Roman official enters the scene, and this Roman official, he is of high rank. There's a lot of people that answer to this man. This man was, a, was one of the higher-up officials in Herod's court. Now, Herod, literally right after this event takes place, is going to behead John the Baptist. Herod was an evil man. He could care less for following God, and he murdered one of God's greatest prophets in all of the Bible. And this man was a part of his leadership council. But this man has a problem. He's desperate. His son is sick. And he is sick to the point of death. He has taken a turn for the worst, and he is not getting better. He is in need of something. And at this point, Jesus and the news of what he can do has spread throughout the entire country of Israel. And people are starting to talk. They're like, man, have you heard about this Jesus guy? Like, he is doing incredible things. And it spread like wildfire. And so this man, even though 
he was a part of a community of people that really could care less about the Lord. He heard this and he was desperate. He needed something. And so he was willing to do whatever it took to get in front of this man named Jesus. And so as Jesus is meeting with, these, with his fellow countrymen, this man comes into the, comes into the scene, and you can imagine the, the, the city that he is coming from is about 15 miles to the north. And so in that day and age, it was probably about a day's long journey. And so you can picture him kind of rushing into the scene and getting in front of Jesus. He's probably sweating. He's all covered in dust. He's probably out of breath. But he does what is necessary to get in front of Jesus. Even though he doesn't understand, even though he's not been a part of a community that follows the Lord, he just has this this desperate hope that maybe, just maybe, everything that people are saying about this Jesus could be true. And he knew that if, if, if it could be true, that there could be hope for his son. And so he gets in front of Jesus. And I think something caught Jesus' eye about this man. It was his humility. This man, as I said, was a high-ranking official. He probably had hundreds of people that answered to him, that he was lord over. He had a title that meant something in the country of Israel and Rome. But without hesitation, without a moment's notice, he was willing to just scrap all of his titles, all of his honor, and all of his pride. He threw it all behind him, and he got on his knees. And the scripture says here that he begs Jesus to save his son, to heal his life. Now, his example and his actions right now are deeply contrasted with the actions and the attitudes of Jesus' own countrymen. And I think Jesus took notice of this. Because all throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, one theme that always remains is that God's ear, his face, always turns to the humble in heart and those reverent in spirit towards him. And so when, God, when Jesus is standing there and he saw this man's humility, he took notice. He took notice. Jesus goes on and he's, he's, he's talking to this man, he's talking to this group. He said, unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Unless you, Jesus is talking to the entire group Not just the man, he's talking to everybody. And he does something incredible. He offers himself to these very people that are taking offense at him. Isn't that the story of redemption and the gospel? Because how many of our lives, and we all can attest to this if we're following Jesus, none of us just wanted Jesus. Jesus entered in. He revealed himself to us on purpose and gave us an opportunity to follow him. And that's what he's doing to these people. Even though, even though they're giving Jesus the Heisman, 
They're like, Jesus, we want your gifts. We want your miracles, but we don't want you. We don't want to follow you. We do not want to do what is necessary to follow you. He still offers himself to them. He still chooses to reveal his power and to reveal who he is. That is how gracious our God is. In the face of the people that are denying him, he loves us. He loved them. And so he says, because you will not believe unless you see a sign or no wonder, I'm going to do it. So he looks at the man. He says, the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Interesting thing about this line. We can read over it really quick. But at this point, the man is asking Jesus to come with him to heal his son. Which reveals that this man doesn't quite fully understand who Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is talking with a Roman centurion. The Roman centurion was from the same town that this man was from. And this Roman centurion comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I have a servant in my household who is paralyzed and is suffering terribly. He needs your help. And so Jesus actually tests this centurion in Matthew chapter 8 and he says, okay, I will come with you to your home. And the man stops Jesus and says, no, Jesus, I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Just speak the words and my servant will be healed. Jesus responds by saying to the group of people that had gathered in front of this man, I have never seen a faith like this in all of Israel. The man knew that Jesus could just speak the word and he would be healed. Which highlights that this Roman official that we're dealing with here in John chapter 4 He doesn't quite have this understanding. He doesn't quite know really what Jesus is actually capable of. But even though the quality of his faith and the quality of his hope is not the greatest, it's maybe not the biggest, where his faith is based upon is what matters here. Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. He, he says this line that I will just never forget. It says, It is not the size or the quality of our faith that matters, but instead, who our faith is based upon. This man's faith, it was probably the size of a mustard seed, maybe a, a sand crystal. And he didn't have the answers. This guy's coming from a background where he could care less about God. But he had a hope. And that's all that mattered because his hope was based upon Jesus. And based upon the fact that Jesus could heal. When we take Jesus at his word, breakthrough can happen. So as as this man is saying these things to Jesus... Jesus just looks at him. <laughs> and Jesus is just looking at him, just so full of grace. Fully knowing, this man, he, he doesn't really understand who I am. 
but I'm going to show him. I'm going to make him mine. And he says, go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. Verse 50 is the punchline of the entire passage. At that, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. This very man who doesn't have all the answers, who doesn't have all the understanding, the quality of his faith is is probably very, very shaky at this point. But all Jesus has to say is go. Leave my sight. Go home. Your son will live. And what does he do? He departs. John here doesn't describe an argument. He doesn't describe questions that this man is asking. Like, wait a second, Jesus, you're, you're not going to come with me and like lay hands on him and pray? Like, how, how can this be? Like, are you serious, right? We don't get that. John doesn't record that because the man had a faith that just simply led him to depart and to go home. And so you can, you can like picture this man. He's, he's probably full of, of wonderings as he's leaving, as he's walking home. I mean, he's got a day's journey ahead. There's a lot of thoughts that you can think on a day's journey. And so you can probably imagine some of the thoughts that he's thinking in his mind. He's probably battling, okay, Jesus said, my son's going to live. And he's fighting to believe that. But you've got to also imagine that Satan at the same time is trying to fill him with doubt and wonderings. And he's probably anxious. He's walking home wondering, okay, I know Jesus said he was going to live, but am I really going to see my son again? And as he's walking down that road, he looks up and he sees two of his right-hand men just running at him. And to him, that can mean one of two things. Either this, this, this man that he put his trust in has failed him and his son is now dead, or Jesus actually fulfilled the promise that he had just said. And so that moment of anticipation, as he's waiting to receive that news from them, The emotions are running high. And these guys come to him with smiles on their faces and joy in their hearts as they say, your son is alive. He is now up. He is running around the house. We cannot hold him down. He is alive. Now, parents in the room, you can can just feel. You can just feel that, that joy that relief, that excitement that he must have felt. But this man, although he had just received this news that his son was alive, we get a glimpse here in John that he's still wondering. He's still questioning about who this Jesus really is. He hasn't fully just given himself over to Jesus as being the greatest of all time and the Messiah and the Son of God because he asks his servants, okay, man, I'm super excited that, that, that our son, that my boy is alive. But by chance, when did he get healthy? 
when did he jump out of bed? And the servant said, at one o'clock in the afternoon. And all of you sitting in here who have Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as you remember back to that time when you exchanged your sin for his righteousness and experienced the redemption and the forgiveness of God, you know that feeling of relief and joy that you felt when you received Christ as Lord. That is what this man experiences at this very moment. He believes because he thinks back and he realizes Jesus said, go, your son will live at one o'clock in the afternoon. And that is the very moment that his son jumped out of bed, full of health and recovery. And the man believes. He's filled with grace. As he realizes that Jesus really is the savior of the world. He's so excited that he just can't hide it. He goes out and he shares this with all of his family. He gets back home, and I'm sure his family had a lot of questions because they're sitting there, they're, they're mourning. I mean, their, their boy is just laying almost dead on this table as they're waiting for their, their husband, their dad to come back, and then all of a sudden, bang! Their boy's jumped out of bed, and they can't hold him down. So you can imagine the questions, the thoughts that are running through their mind, but then as their father, their husband, as this man comes back to his family and he shares this, they believe in Jesus too. And their lives are changed as they recognize that Jesus was the greatest of all time, the Son of God. And they're redeemed. Through this passage... We're given a a glimpse that Jesus not only has the power and the ability to work physical miracles and physical healing in our lives, but he also has the ability to work spiritual and emotional miracles in our lives. This man's son was almost dead, no hope in the world, and Jesus spoke and his son was raised back to life. These people, this man, this family that went to Jesus with stone cold hearts without an understanding in the world of who the Lord was after this experience were transformed and will forever experience him in heaven. Complete life transformation and complete physical transformation are what we see in this passage. But as I was prepping for this, and as I was examining this passage, and even as we look ahead through this entire series, as we look to be encouraged to believe in miracles, there's a couple different groups in this room right now. There's the group that for this particular season of life, your faith is the size of a mountain. You have seen God answer prayers. 
You have seen him do things that only God can do, and it has elevated your faith to the size of a mountain, to where it it hardly, it can't even be contained in this room. And you are encouraged. Praise God for that. Praise God for those seasons of life that he takes us through. But there's also the group in this room, and you're walking in here this morning, and you feel like your faith is the size of a salt crystal. And you've been beaten down by loss and pain. Maybe some turmoil in relationships. Maybe family members, maybe f- kids that you're trying to parent. That you're just trying to love and love and love and they just don't seem to get it. And you feel like you're banging your head against a wall. And you're coming in here broken. God speaks to both groups in this passage this morning. And he gives all of us hope and joy, no matter what we're facing. Our son Marcus, he uh, talked a lot about him uh, this morning so far. But when he was born, we were, we were super excited, and we were there in the hospital, and my wife was in the midst of labor, and I had raised sheep uh, all growing up, and so I had delivered a lot of baby lambs in my, in my life. Love to talk with some of you about that if uh, you're ever interested. Um, it was a great time in my life, a lot of interesting stories, um, but I had never experienced a human being born, being born, and so I was in there, and uh, as kind of time was, was, was getting closer for Marcus to come into the world, some NICU nurses kind of started rolling into the room, and um, they were trying not to really make a big deal of it, but as it got closer and closer, the doctor just informed us, hey, these, these, do- these nurses, this doctor over here, they're just going to be here just in case. Um, it shouldn't be a big deal. But some moments passed, and you could just kind of see, I'm pretty good at reading people's faces, and her face, I was reading it, it, it wasn't good. And I kind of just try to stay calm and uh, try to keep encouraging my wife. And so finally, Marcus comes into the world, and he is like dark gray. And I just remember the, ner- the doctor, she literally just, she kind of grabbed him, and then it was just an instantaneous, just, she just dropped him off to this NICU doctor, who they just began immediately just putting all kinds of stuff in him and on him, and it was just an incredibly confusing time. But thankfully, our doctor who, who had gotten him out, she was a believer, and so I knew something was, was a little bit wrong when she just instantly began praying that God would spare his life. And so about an hour later after the doctors had cleared out, they took Marcus out of the room pretty much immediately. A doctor comes into us, just my wife and I. We've been praying, just confused. And the doctor in his best bedside manner says, bottom line, we don't know if your son is going to make it. He is fighting for his life right now. And I remember that feeling just hit me like a rock. So I was like, what in the world is going on here? It was a helpless feeling. But by that point, our families, they knew what was happening. At that point, our families had basically told everybody that they knew. 
And within an hour or so, I mean, there were hundreds of people praying for our son. And in the course of three days, it seemed like with every hour and with every doctor's checkup, we watched God bring him back to health to where in a matter of a day, he couldn't breathe on his own at all when he was born. But within a day, they took the ventilator out. And within three days, he was off every single piece of life support that he had been on when he, when he was born. And so firsthand, I watched this. I watched God heal him. I watched God use prayers that people that I had spoken maybe a one sentence to who were praying for our son, I saw God use that to physically heal our son. It's an incredible experience. It reminded me that God has the ability, he has the power to heal us physically. He has the ability to answer those prayers. And so we are not to offer those prayers of healing up in vain, wondering if God even hears those kinds of prayers because he absolutely does. And he wants us to continue offering those in faith. Fast forward about uh, four and a half months ago, my wife and I, we had been praying for a long time and we'd been asking God to, to give us another child. Marcus is at the point where he, he needed another sibling. And so we'd been praying for this for a long time. Every night before we go to bed, my wife and I were praying for this. And four and a half months ago, I was sitting in my living room. My wife comes up, and, and she cannot keep a secret to save her life at all. I mean, she, she, if she finds something out, she, I mean, she's just got to say it. Um, and so she rushes out to me, and she's like, babe, I'm pregnant. And I was just filled with joy, so excited and praising God. I mean, in that moment, we just stopped and just thanked the Lord for the, the gift that we had just found out that we were going to have. And so from that point on, every single day, every single night, I was praying for our child. I was praying, God, please protect our little baby. See to it that, that, that you bear to us a healthy baby in nine months. About six weeks or so passed. I was driving home one night, and I got a, a phone call from my wife. And she let me know. She said, something's very wrong. And I think I might be miscarrying. And in that moment, it was the exact same feeling I felt when I heard, we don't know if your son's going to make it hit me like a rock. And all these questions flooded my mind, flooded my heart. We went to the emergency room, and over the course of a few hours, it was confirmed that my wife was miscarrying our, our second child. And that happened on a Friday. I remember sitting right there in the center aisle there in the back, that Sunday during service, and Jeremy and the band, they came out, and they sang, It Is Well. And I remember as they sang those lyrics, I couldn't do anything but cry, 
And the only thing that I could speak in my mind and in my heart was, Lord, it is not well with my soul. And I was filled with questions because I had a faith. I had seen God work this miracle in our son Marcus, and we were praying out of that faith. We'd seen him do that. But it didn't happen the way that we were praying. And I remember there was a few weeks that went by that were just kind of like a fog. And I was wrestling with God. And there were days where I really could care less if I was following the Lord or not. But a couple weeks later, I was preparing for a Kids City message. We were talking about humility. And the passage was Luke chapter 22, 41 through 44. And that's when God got my attention. And that's when he began working a spiritual and emotional miracle in my heart. Because Luke chapter 22 is when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is moments away from being arrested, betrayed by one of his great friends, and all of his friends are going to run away. Moments before this. And in Luke 22, we find Jesus on his knees, sweating like drops of blood with anxiety. And he is screaming to his father, Lord, if there is any other way, Take this cup of wrath that you are wanting me to drink and throw it as far away from me as possible. Make there be another way. But he said a line that is so crucial here. He says, but not my will, but your will be done. It says as he speaks those words, as Jesus spoke that to his father, it says, and the angel of heaven came down to Jesus and strengthened him. And he began praying once more. Hebrews chapter 5 says that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus gives us the model. As we pray, as we long for miracles, physical and spiritual and emotional miracles, Jesus gives us the model to follow. And his model is humility and reverent submission. Appreciating God and Jesus for who they are. And when I realized that not even the Savior of the world had his prayer answered in that darkest moment of need, and as I recounted the blessing and the forgiveness that came out of it for all of us and Jesus, I was filled with with hope that God's will is always best. There's nothing better than God's will. And even though you don't understand, even though you are walking possibly right now through some incredible pain or turmoil, 
please know that from God's word and from the Savior of the world himself, he testifies that God's will, the trial, the thing that you are walking through right now, the healing that he could give you is all to point you to the glory of Christ and to grow your affections for him, for who he is. All of it is drawing us to that. Last week, we saw a video, Brother Grand Roberts. Man, how encouraging was that? The man needed a new heart. He was going to die. Yet he goes into the doctor's office to get the checkup, and what did the nurse do? She, she kind of scratches her head and is like, how does this happen? Wait, there must be something wrong. In fact, let's, we, we probably got to do some more tests because this is just not looking right. You don't need a new heart anymore. How does that happen? Jesus. And a reverent, humble faith in him. But at the same time, how does a man or a woman who has terminal cancer, who has been fighting with it for years, knowing full well that if God doesn't choose to heal them physically, that their life on earth will end. How do those people walk through that trial with joy and peace, all the while pointing people to the God of love? How does that happen? Jesus. Because in our human natures, when we go through hard things, when we go through trials... We want to coil up and we want to curse God. That's what Job's friends were telling him to do when he was going through the worst trial of his life. Curse God and die, they said. That is our human nature. But when the Spirit of God is living inside of us and we have Jesus as our hope and our joy and our future that's when we can consider trials of many kinds with joy. And through that trial, and through the people that come in contact with with them, miracles will happen. Life transformation will happen. But we also see that God can full well heal our bodies as well. Fruit is going to be produced in our lives when we take Jesus at his word. Jesus desires that we love him for who he is and for what he has done for us in the gospel. He wants that to be our foundation because we know that all other foundations, they are like sinking sand. Everything else that we put our hope in is going to sink and fall and be destroyed. But if our hope, if our faith is in Jesus, we have everything. And if we follow the example and the model that this Roman official has given us in this passage, the the, the model that Jesus has given to us, and we go before our God in humility 
and in reverent submission for his glory and his ability, God will hear us. And he has the ability to sanctify us, to sanctify our body of believers through physical healing and spiritual and emotional healing as well. As your past, one of your pastors, I have been praying for goal number 26. Goal number 26 says this, that at least five, I think that's a small number, at least five people in our church body would experience miracles this year. We're praying for that. I want you to be praying that. And I want you to be praying that prayer with faith and humility because we have a God who hears us and wants to respond to us. And even though he may not respond in the exact way that we think he should act, he's always going to act with our best in mind. That is the truth that we see here in Scripture. So whatever you are going through this morning, whether you're sitting here and your faith is the size of that salt crystal and you feel like there is hardly a light at the end of your tunnel, even though it might be small, even though it might be faint, if you have Jesus as your Lord, that is a light that will never go away. It will never, ever go out because he promises in Scripture. He says to his disciples as he's leaving, he says, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's never going to leave us. He's never going to forsake us. And when we come before him in faithful submission, he is going to hear us. Take this to heart as we go into this closing psalm. Psalm 73. David is speaking to God. May this be so true of us this morning. He says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Jesus is the greatest of all time. And if you have him, you have everything. When we take Jesus at his word, breakthrough can happen.